Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's off-track betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices. For the win! Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes Stephen Blush to discuss his book, American Hardcore, A Tribal History. Nate and Stephen talk about the angry, loud, and disaffected scene of the early 1980s, which managed to change the course of American culture despite the active opposition of the music industry. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Stephen Blush, author of American Hardcore, A Tribal History. Stephen, thanks for coming on the show. Great to be here. It's really great to be here. And so this is uh, a very important piece of work. You did a, a book in two editions. I think it came out in 2002 and then again in 2010, expanded and updated. And you also did a documentary that came out 2006. Right. So... You know, this is kind of like the story of my my youth, of or you know my my story growing up. In many ways, uh, was my life was this scene that I kind of came up through, and um, it's it's kind of I have a it's kind of a long story, but uh, the easiest way to describe it is my um, 
my father worked in New York. My father worked right around in the Lower East Side and like the, when the bad old days of the 70s and um, right around the corner from CBGB's, right up the block from St. Mark's Place. So at a very young age, meaning like 12, 13, 14, I was going to these places to drink and, to, and I found record stores and I discovered this whole scene and um, which was punk rock, which was a very <clears throat> something that I I really respected the whole thing, but I and I really loved the music and I saw so many seminal shows coming up through my teens, but I didn't fully relate to it um, in that these people were older, these were people who'd gone to art school, uh, kind of intellectuals get junkies. Which and none, you know, none of that was really me. I didn't, you know, I didn't know that Bauhaus was an art movement. You know, when I first got there, I just knew it as a band. You know, that's kind of where I was coming from. So I was from the suburbs of New Jersey. Uh, I spent all my weekends with my dad, like I'm saying at this, you know, in the Lower East Side. So I have this kind of double life where it's suburban and rock and roll and I go down to college in Washington DC in the fall of 1980 and there's like this whole new form of punk rock going on it's spearheaded by the bad brains and you know there's these new bands like the Teen Idol single had just come out when I was there which is the precursor to Minor Threat and uh, these were suburban kids with their own form of revolution, social revolution. And uh, I fell in with that. So I was not a musician. I, like I said, I was coming to college. I came to study politics at George Washington University right by the White House. And it was the inauguration of Ronald Reagan. So a lot of things were really coming to a head. And there was this movement and Dead Kennedys put out these records, which were, you know, and this whole kind of anti-Reagan meets uh, a new form of punk rock based on what the Bad Brains and a lot of the West Coast bands were doing, which was the emphasis on speed and energy. And it was physical. I was a kid who was you know a letterman in sports but i never really fit in with the jock culture so there was this whole and whole thing kind of came really spoke to me but i wasn't a musician so uh i was at a tsol had come through uh, on their first tour and i met their manager who was also the dead kennedy's manager and he convinced me to I, I was a radio DJ at my college radio station. I was like the first kid playing these records on these labels like Discord and Touch and Go. I had Ian Mackay on my radio show. And basically because I was the only person, you know, connected to anything who was part of this very kind of feral punk scene. There was, there was no press. There was no um, media attention, really. I mean, I had a college radio show, so and I talk 
you know, and Ian came on and played his records and gave me some. And since then, I met the manager of, uh, since I worked at the radio station, I, I met the manager of the Dead Kennedys, and he uh, convinced me to book the Dead Kennedys, and I booked them into my school cafeteria, and I almost got <laughs> thrown out of college, but I did, um, that kind of set me on this path, right? And uh, I became the kid promoter in town. I did the Dead Kennedys a couple times. I did Black Flags, Circle Jerks. Uh, you can look it up, but I, I mean, certainly 20, 25 shows I did in my my four years there. So um, flash forward, I moved to New York. Uh, there, there was a burgeoning hardcore scene there, um, but there was also so much more going on in terms of uh, I had worked at the radio station, so I was able to get work as a DJ in New York nightclubs. So there was hip-hop and club music and the dawn of what you would now call techno. And there's just, you know, there was just so much going on. And I started, uh, I was an editor at Paper Magazine. I started my own fanzine called Seconds, which we did 52 issues of. So I had, I had, I was always a punk rocker and I was always attached to this hardcore thing, but, uh, you know, oh, and, and of course speed metal, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, there was so many different areas that I was more interested in, but then there was this punk revival, like right after the grunge explosion, which I was tight with all those bands because those were basically hardcore kids that I had met on the road, you know, through the years, like, like Nirvana, Soundgarden. Uh, um, and then the Bad Religion. Was. Yeah, and then the second wave oh, yeah, of right, the right, punk right. revival in the 90s with, with a lot of bands oh, that yeah, so, make yeah, yeah. cameo appearances in the book, like Bad Religion, that was totally a very minor band in the 80s, but stuck with it and had a record company epitaph in, in the 90s they become huge on their own label right but so, yeah that's it's really cool you say that because that's exactly what it was kind of leading to which is this punk revival kind of happens in the early 90s and i had known brett for bad religion they would be like the fourth band on a black flag bill you know and um they i used to go see them at cb there was a there was a tour i want to say it was 1988 and it was um bad religion in L7 and you know there was 50 people there you know so that was right before they went to I think their story was they went to Germany and then it just exploded there um, that's where they finally so so I get to know all these bands like um, well there was a band in New York called Degeneration which was kind of like the focal point of the punk scene in New York. And they had a club called Coney Island high. So the touring bands would come through. So that's, you know, you would get to know green day and rancid and offspring. And I had this connection through my writing with epitaph during all those times. And, you know, so, but so here's, here's where I get to American hardcore is that I start hearing people telling me the history of hardcore, you know, like this, this, the hardcore thing, you know, like people are like 10, 15 years younger than me, 
And that's not an ageist thing, but they just kind of had it wrong because they there was there. no real documented history. Sure, there were fanzines, but there was no Rolling Stone article. There was no anything on TV or broadcast. I mean, this was a such a deep, deep subculture. You know, this was like, I can't really explain. It's hard to explain subculture in the day in the modern era because what we're talking about is things that gestate for 10, 15 years, you know? So I've, like my life from like 15 to 35 was incredibly underground. And in a minute it became huge, you know, it's like, you know, like I worked with like all those, like I'm saying all the grunge bands, and, you know, and then, then there's this, punk revival, which is, you know, so much bigger than even the English thing was. It's like the biggest thing of all. And um, anyway, so I was hearing a lot of history. I was seeing some of the bands go on. I was interviewed. Oh, so I'd interview a lot of these bands. I'm not going to name a couple of them, but I think I said one or two. I said one of them just before, but I was interviewing one of these bands and it's, um, like they don't know who I am and they're telling me stuff about what, Hey, I had very long hair at the time. This is kind of a fuck you to everybody. And I was like, and she's trying to school me on punk. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> and then there was this series of rock and roll history of rock and roll series on, I want to say it was PBS. It was like a, you have to look it up. It's got a, it's like a 10 part series of the history of rock. And I watched this thing and it goes from like the band X straight to Nirvana, like hardcore never even happened, you know? And I was like, because, you know, they just didn't even know the people who made it probably just didn't even know about it, you know, or didn't even consider it. People didn't even consider this stuff music. It was like, you know, everyone talks about like, how, like, how the hell are you going to have a career, you know, making this stuff? You know, it's like, it's, you're not doing it for those reasons. You know, it's, it's such a deeper thing than like becoming a rock star. Or, you know, it was like you were buying into something so deep that I'm really just, you know, as I hit, you know, just hit the 50, my fifties mark. It's like, uh, you know, I realized like how powerful this whole thing was. It's like, we were, Kind of like war, you know, like war veterans. Like you could pick up, like if you served with somebody, you could meet them twenty years later and pick up that conversation like it was yesterday. And um, I'm friends with people from all walks of life that I would never know if it wasn't for this music. I, my home, um, uh, like everything I do dates back to this this hardcore thing, and I think. Uh, that was the focus of all the projects you just saw. And that's what, why it got so big. Uh, I will tell you a funny story is that um, uh, before I went to Feral House with my book uh, with American Hardcore, uh, and the late Adam Parfrey was a close friend of mine. Um, but before that, I wanted to get it, try a major to see if I'd get it on like a, on a major publisher. And I did have a deal with somebody until I met the head of the company. And he said, hey, why don't you put Debbie Harry on the cover? 
for American <laughs> hardcore. That's classic. And um, I just walked away from a, I walked away from a sixty thousand dollar deal and, and almost got myself sued by the agent. You know, so but there was no way I was doing that. And I took a very, you know, Federal House, you earn your money. They're a great company. But you, you know, as, as an independent, you make, you earn what you make. You know, you, I mean, you earn what you sell. So American Hardcore book, I went on a tour. I'll tell you the book, I got, a, uh, I'm in New York City. We had an event, a little event on September 11th, 2001. I got oh, the, my first copy of American Hardcore on September 10th. And, um, you know, I didn't even know, like, like what was going to happen with humanity, let alone the book. So, um, uh, also, so, but I had had planned a book tour. So I went left about, you know, 30 days later, went off on a two month tour, which is like, I just did it like a band. Cause that's the only thing I really know what to do. So I would go to bookstores and I would go to record stores. I know I did a whole bunch of stuff in Texas. Um, you know, I did, uh, I just did it like a band, uh, the editor, George Petros and I gotten, it was like getting the van, you know, I worked out some scams that I was able to, went to car, like went to truck with unlimited miles and I used the unlimited miles and we went to Seattle and we went to, you know, whatever, you know, we did LA, uh, art galleries, rock shows, all ages gigs. And by the time I got home, well, maybe not two months, maybe about five weeks actually. But so, but anyway, by the time I got home by Thanksgiving slash Christmas, the book had already sold out. And I um, knew that when I was writing this. And it's like the book is a vitally important service that you've done in cataloging this history that was totally erased. Uh, very little known in the first place. I mean, this was kids, a few dozen of kids in a couple dozen cities, a few dozen each. And in some cities, you know, L.A. had a few hundred, maybe a few thousand people involved. But this was a minuscule scene of people photocopying fanzines, recording cassettes, uh, tiny record labels pressing, you know, editions of two, three thousand, maybe sometimes five hundred. And, you know, you documented it. And, you know, I was in Borger, Texas in the 80s and got to see Black Flag in 86 and Who's wow. Do in 87. It was very, we were very desperate for news. You know, it took us a month and a half to find out that, that D. Boone of the Minutemen had died in late 85. So the, there was no internet. It was very hard to get information about this stuff. And one of the, the groups that I had never heard of until your book was this uh, band we're about to play, Middle Class, which their single Out of Vogue is considered by many to be one of the two first hardcore punk singles. Let's hear it. This is Middle Class, Out of Vogue. That was middle class 
Out of Vogue, which many consider to be one of the first hardcore punk singles. And like many of their hardcore brethren, they came out of the greater L.A. suburban area. L.A. had a punk scene. It was one of the few cities in the U.S. that immediately took up the baton uh, once the CBG, CBGB scene in New York had exploded and then punk you know, exploded big in England. And L.A. took up the mantle with bands like X that you mentioned, but also Germs and Fear. In a lot of ways, they were precursors to hardcore. They, they tended to be older and more educated, and the Hollywood crowd was a little more artsy. But there were elements in that L.A. punk scene that pointed directly to where hardcore was going. Um, oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, uh, LA, I mean, I, I didn't, I don't mean anything disparaging of the, um, uh, the, the LA, uh, punk bands, but they had the energy, but they, what they didn't have was the work ethic of the bands that came from more of the suburbs around them, which were, of course was like black flag and bad religion all these guys who started their own bands and labels themselves and toured and toured and toured like a band like black flag were just notorious workaholics greg again starts this in a church in huntington beach which was absolutely siberia culturally as far as you know the media elite and downtown la was concerned and doing things like practicing eight hours a day you know, there's yeah. a story in the book about Black Flag booking a rehearsal studio on Christmas Day <laughs> to yeah. to practice all day long, and just you know getting in the van and touring. And they had sort of a Johnny Appleseed quality where every day, everywhere they went, and they're basically calling random people up and trying to get any place to play. They're playing in rec rooms and basements and abandoned buildings and. Everywhere they go, a scene sort of seems to follow in their wake. Yeah, um, I don't know if Black Flag, the power of Black Flag is completely translated to vinyl for the modern era, but I can say that that was definitely the most intense band I've ever seen, and I, it was cult-like almost. It was, uh, I saw them probably close to 20 times, and, uh, I've later learned that a lot of what Greg Ginn was doing was not musically, but uh, business-wise emulating what the Grateful Dead had done, which was the ultimate anti-anti-anti band for anybody who loved hardcore, but they were uh, a, a self-contained touring machine. And that's what, who had their own gear and put it, you know, controlled their, uh, records and you know records weren't the most important part of their thing so uh, but yeah uh, that aside um, such an important band and um, really all the bands you mentioned before of course were on they started on Black Flag's label right so yeah and that comes incredible and that one thing that comes through in, in the book, and I think you do a good job of, of setting the scene, and you talk about some of the sort of generic factors of hardcore as a movement, um, things you know, like the, the context of Reaganism and, and coming up in the early 80s when, when the majority culture is trying to have this morning in America moment yep. that's 
totally fabricated and fake and we're living with the consequences of that you know the decision to ignore jimmy carter's you know attempts to do something about the energy crisis and climate change and reagan was just like screw that we're going to spend the grandkids money and have a big party and and we Mm -hmm. did but you know hardcore was funny for those kids who for various reasons were disaffected and and called bullshit on all that and you know and then things like it's a very violent scene, mostly because it's young dudes. It tends to be overwhelmingly male, although it wasn't necessarily explicitly sexist. There had been bands in punk like the Dead Boys or Fear that were explicitly sexist, but hardcore is almost more asexual than sexist. And Yeah, I, I try to make that point. You know, it's like, I think if there was a chapter that bothered a lot of people I knew, or troubled some people I knew, uh, from the book was where I have to just ask the obvious question. Okay, what is this with a bunch of guys with no shirts on jumping on top of each other? Right? So, yeah. um, you know, but it, it is more asexual is the answer. It's like football in that way. Like, and I kind of, uh, I kind of got that part of it, just the camaraderie and the mucking around aspect of it. Yeah, and the, and there was elements of homophobia. There was certainly violence against homosexuals, but I think in the context of the overall culture, which was just an incredibly homophobic society, even more than we are today, and very violent. That's another thing I don't think people, younger people realize is if you shaved your head and put on an anarchy jacket, you were basically asking for an ass-whipping anywhere in the United States. 100%. I mean, you're, you're in Texas, so that's, you know, I mean, I oh, carried yeah. on for much longer for... <laughs> <laughs> you know, the late the late seventies, early eighties. You know, so um, the uh, it was, and I remember, you know, the reaction when it stopped. You know, to get cast in uh, Palestine, Texas, or something. You know, um, so uh, I really feel like um, it was like an empowerment movement, really. Um, and I don't say that lightly. Um, I mean, look at what was created by a bunch of dudes who, you know, I mean, think about, like, if you just cumulatively put, um, I don't know, Greg Ginn, Ian Mackay, uh, I don't know, whatever, you, you take five of the, Glenn Danzig, take five of these people, in, uh, the bad brains, whatever, put five of these people together, like, how much they changed the world? Yeah, and, uh, and it's staggering. It's really like a, a staggering thing. And uh, I, you know, to go to DC and have, um, you know, this rising—I guess you would just call it the, the early Discord era. Um, uh, you know, some of the bands weren't—you know—some of the bands were better than the other, but at a certain point, it's silver or gold. You know, it's like they're both good. You know, um, the energy. I mean, I remember I was out with No Trend, and we were on a tour. We were opening for the Dead Kennedys. We did like about ten dates across the country with them. COC was actually one of those bands. Reed Mullen, rest in peace. Um, uh, but, um, I remember when we played a club show in Norman, Oklahoma, the band who opened for us, it was their very first show, was Flaming Lips. So, and I know when we played in 
uh, Seattle, like the second or third band on the bill was Soundgarden. And so, um, you know, it, uh, definitely it's, it's heavy, you know, like the, the, the roots of it is so deep, you know, um, it was a movement that had uh, a, it's, like no support from the music industry. In fact, it had active opposition from the music industry. Clubs were yeah, not was, hardcore I, mean, bands. I, I could have been a very successful in the music career if I didn't keep didn't keep that hardcore punk rock thing, you know. Um, but you know, it's an aesthetic that you um, that people hated at the time. It wasn't like you didn't have a chance. It was like. Uh, you know, I had kind of like messy hair, you know, and some snaggly clothes that would sit in at a punk show, but I was hardly, like I didn't have a mohawk or anything like that. And I was still constant, you know, hey, hey, just, hey, Devo, you know, like they didn't want to call you back then, you know, like, you know, I felt more in those years than every year put together, even as like an eight-year-old. You know, where you probably fight your most, and uh, um, yeah. I would be like, I I fought definitely fought more in like those like you know eighteen to twenty, what uh, like sixteen to twenty years, just defending myself for like being into this stuff. You know? And it it's it was like the effect of a cultural depth charge. It took fuses were lit in the early eighties, and connections were made. And it took time for the greater culture to feel it. But eventually, in the 90s and on into now, it's still reverberating. And, and let's hear Black Flag's version of Louie Louie, which is just a classic case of taking rock history and, and throwing it in people's faces. This really pissed people off at the time. This is Des Kaduna leading Black Flag to Louie Louie. Yep. Black Flag's infamous cover of the Richard Berry classic, Louie Louie, which had a big impact at the time. I mean, it was on a Rhino Records compilation of, of different versions of Louie Louie that included you know, the Beach Boys and the Kinks and marching bands. And so in a certain ways, Black Flag in particular around 81 with their Damaged album was flirting with some acceptance. I mean, they're playing shows in L.A. where two, 3,000 people are coming out. And they briefly signed this deal with Unicorn, which was a shady subsidiary of MCA, the major label, and it looked like they were going to square the circle and get major label distribution for an un- a totally underground album, but it all fell apart. What happened there? Yeah, I was around for a lot of that stuff. It was basically like, it's kind of like what you had just said about the music business. Nobody really wanted to deal with it. You know, they didn't even want to really even make money on it. They kind of, you know, it wasn't like really enough money for them to like shake their own values, you know. Um, but anyway, uh, Black Flag seemed like this really big band from the outside. And uh, as I got to know them uh, right around this, I had seen them 
the real a real turning point for me was um, it's called the Valentine's Day Massacre. So I guess it was Valentine's Day of nineteen eighty one, and um, it was Black Flag with Ben Scadina came to D.C. and S.O.A. with Henry Rollins was one of the opening bands. So, and that was like deep D.C. hardcore culture. And that night I met um, Greg and Chuck and, them and Robo. And I remember like being backstage and what was weird about it was like everyone was kind of all these really intense dudes like or even the Kai's or whatever were like kind of if I, if the way I remember it was I mean I don't know if he was one of them but I just remember a whole bunch of like skinhead dudes like sit, literally sitting on the floor and listening to them talk like that's how powerful uh, how inspirational this band was and uh, um and then they came through about, I didn't really know Henry at that point, but I knew who he was from seeing him. But, I, you know, about six months later, he ends up as the singer of the band and they came to D.C. And then that's about when I started going to see them a lot. And uh, it, it, from the outside, it looked like this big, big thing. Uh, flash forward a couple of years later, but still the same vibe. Um, Black Flag was playing a huge show in New Jersey. At a certain point in Black Flag's career, they didn't even play New York and LA. They just played the suburbs. It was that was like the, the mission, you know. So you would get a Black Flag tour with four or five shows in New Jersey, and um, so I would. Um, I remember like thinking this is the biggest band in the world and I take them back to my house and let them rob my mom's pantry for food, you know? So, uh, she's never forgotten that either. I <laughs> like walking in her house and raiding her pantry. Yeah. And should she's I get still, the, the deal? Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. So, so they, I don't know too much about the business, a guy who would really know that kind of stuff would be someone like um, Joe Carducci or like one of those kind of guys with no that business side. He does, he does tell me a bunch of it in the book, but I don't know all the details, but the way it's described in the book, if I remember, um, it's like they had this distribution deal where it was like they could still be an underground band and be on MCA at the same time, but that actually didn't work because you really need to be on MCA. Like they're not really going to care about you unless you're... That's the problem with a lot of distribution deals in businesses in general. At the end of the day, they're just distributing you. You're not their product. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and MCA... So I, think was, I think it was something like that. So, and then they... But, but what really complicated things was uh, they... Um, there's this point where they they actually, and this might be the only musicians I know this story of, but for their music, they were thrown in jail. They went before a judge in a case of, um, and they, um, I, the guy didn't let, the judge didn't like this band, but he saw a bunch of like these freaks, you know, See these dudes, scruffy dudes walk in, and 
uh, you know, they spent a few days in jail. They put out this record called Everything Went Black, where they actually don't, where they cross out the name Black Flag. It all had to do with their contract with MCA somehow. That's why I said that part I don't know. Well, yeah, but, they were injunct. Uh, there was an injunction against them right. in their lawsuit right. with Unicorn yeah, Records, and they literally could not perform or release any records for like 18 months at the peak of their popularity. Right. So, and, and that was a very cr- a critical time, too. It was like that's when the whole thing was exploding. That's when hardcore was exploding. So they got kind of fucked up because there's actually like a – it doesn't seem like it now, but there was a long lag time between – Damaged and my war, and my war is almost like a different. It's almost like a different thing. I don't know if you've uh, there's if you go online, you could find the the my war demo, which is has absolutely on drums. That's one of the great recordings to me. Hardcore uh, punk, whatever you know, recordings ever. Uh, but somehow they made the record with. Uh, Greg also playing bass as well as guitar under a pseudonym. So, um, yeah, I don't know that punch. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. I mean, in the, while the band is fighting this lawsuit, and they fought it brilliantly, they, they ended up destroying Unicorn Records, and, 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 yeah. and, and the judge had to throw out the case. But in the meantime, Gin has basically chased off, you know, Des Kadena, the second guitarist and former vocalist, quit. Chuck Biscuits, the great drummer that they poached from DOA, quit. Uh, Chuck Dukowski, the you know, to me, half of Black Flag, the bass player, yeah. is pushed out because he can't keep perfect time to Greg Ginn's specifications. Right. And like you say, that that uh, demo, the My War demos with two guitars, which is how it was written for, and and Chuck Biscuits on drums, is this incredibly powerful document. But instead, we get My War with overdubbed bass and really thin production, and it's the beginning of thinner and thinner sounding records from black flag and also the beginning of a very confrontational relationship between black flag and their audience the original black flag was confrontational with the greater society but by the time they're doing instrumental albums you know of stone jams and and henry rollins doing spoken word poetry and putting out three records a year uh it was and growing their hair really long like if you it was a pre-internet era, so you may not have known, you know, that Chuck Dukowski wasn't in the band with his shaved head on Damage. You were getting like, you were hearing like his easy pop before they went on stage. You know, they were just fucking with everybody. The bad long hair, they're playing black. Oh, they, oh and the other big one was uh, uh, Mob Rules and Heaven and Hell by Black Sabbath with yeah, the, James Dio. The deal so they would play them. these records before they went on. They would grow their hair long. People would like sucker punch Henry. This is where I really gained my respect for Henry Rollins, and I will never, ever say anything bad about the guy because he took so much shit as the fucking singer of Black Flag. Like, I remember, like, he'd come out, like, with, like, long hair and Speedos, barefoot. Kids, kids would be like, you know, like be reaching into the crowd with his long hair flying. Kids are like lighting his balls on fire with a lighter or like pulling the hairs on, on his leg. You know, he was, it was just, it was so nasty. And, but it was so punk. And it was so, you know, I mean, it was like the natural road. You know, it's like, as I said, this was like a cult. 
you know, you were buying, you know, you were buying deep into, if you got into Black Flag, it never ended, you know. There's a bunch of people in the city who are pretty well known who are more related to Black Flag, and it's still, we have that connection. I mean, we're still always talking about Black Flag. Yeah. Because they were that intense. It had that you know, effect, so, you know. And, yeah, and I mean, the... I'm a big Greg Ginn fan. I mean, I know, I get it. I know he needs a figure. I know what he's done wrong. I've seen him with five people at a, at a, at a club. I mean, but I respect the guy. He was the most punk of all of them. You know, he, like, set the bar so high that no one, you know, it, it kind of fucks you up. It's like, you know, there's this line in the book where, like, Henry's saying, like, you know, she's hanging out with Gin and Dukowski, and they're, like, they hear some Nick Cave in 1983 or something, and, you know, those guys are going, that's so weak, that's so weak. You know, so it's like yeah. a high, it's like a high standard that you're you're dealing with. That you know, these guys were like, these guys were out. This was like social revolution. You know, so the, that's what I don't think a lot. This is this is why I had to write the book, had to update the book, had to make the film. You know, and you know that film. You know, let me tell you. You know, we sent it to Sundance and. They didn't put us in Sundance because they like MGC and Black Flag. You know, it's because we were telling like the cultural story, you know, about subculture in the Reagan era. And, um, and it, that was. Yeah, it, it freaked people out in the 80s and continued to upset people uh, hearing about it, you know, 20 years later in the 2000s. And, and you know, the story of Black Flag is repeated or echoed in different ways. You focus on regional scenes, uh, you know, but you also focus on basically four big bands in the book that, that get either whole chapters or most of a chapter devoted to them. You've got Black Flag, the Bad Brains from D.C., and then they move to New York. You've got the Dead Kennedys uh, almost getting their own chapter out of San Francisco. Then you've got Minor Threat in D.C., uh, and then the Misfits, get a chapter and and misfits is a perfectly apt name i mean they definitely did not fit in with that scene but each of those bands i mean it's easy for us at the time it, it was it seemed ridiculous to think that any band out of this scene could get popular but if you really look at the histories of these bands each one of them in their own way flirted with popularity and made decisions that from a careers point of view sabotage the band i mean the bad brains are the most infamous example of that where Oh, yep. They repeatedly, they almost signed with Island Records. They were supposed to go out on tour with you too. But the singer HR is having this struggle where he wants to play reggae and has converted into Rastafarianism and is struggling with schizophrenia, which we didn't know at the time. And um, But this behavior, this erratic behavior that continues to sabotage him. And, you know, again, with the Dead Kennedys, they have the, the they put an HR Geiger poster in, in one of their albums and you know the PM, the Parents Music Research Council yep. is formed basically to shut them down. You know each each of these bands had their own Waterloo, and almost all of them were self-inflicted. And before we um, start talking about Minor Threat, I want to play Minor Threat's "Cashing In," which is a tongue-in-cheek parody of the kind of struggles they were going through, and and the kind of accusations they were facing from fans who felt that they were selling out. So here's Minor Threat's "Cashing In." Oh, oh, oh. 
And this is that was Minor Threats cashing in with Ian McKay's tongue-in-cheek and ironic references to to selling out. And this is at a time when the rest of the band is trying to learn U2 songs and and thinking big. I mean, they were always a very tight, musically excellent band. But Ian didn't want to go that way, and it and it it tore apart. Yes, it, it was funny. There really were two factions to that. Well, because because. Well, let's be serious. That's Ian McKay's band, period. But since he was so uh, democratic about it or benevolent about it, he he shares the the bounty equally, which I think is probably the right thing to do. It's clearly the right thing to do, but um, in terms of the spirit of your group. But um, and one of them went on to become like a major rock guitarist. And another one became a lawyer. Uh, so that was one wing of the band who, like you said, were trying to become rock stars. They were trying to play with Glenn Danzig in a super group that didn't really work. That turned into Sam Hain. Um, they did an album with they, uh, Tesco V of the Meat Men, wore the super bikes. Yeah. Ab- absolutely oh, the wow. biggest disappointment uh, of my mail order music fan career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw that band. I actually saw that them play. That was uh, that was quite a scene. I, I, but you know, the one thing was is that there were there was one wig of that band that really did, you know, want rock stardom, which is the guitarist who created this, you know, incredible guitar sound, no doubt about it. Um, but you know. You know, we talk about the bar being set high. You know, they like we saw in the movie that they hung out with the bad brains, and you know, the bad brains would practice and play, and then hand the bass and the guitars over to them and say, "Here, you guys, you know, you guys practice." And, you know, yeah, and, and you better, I'm gonna, you better, you better deliver. Set the scene on the bad brains a little bit because you know, for a scene that was so white, and and you know, there's quotes in the book of people that sort of prided themselves that this was a scene where we didn't have to feel guilty that we were stealing music from black people, which is true in a way. But on the other hand, arguably, the architects of the hardcore sound are the bad brains, who are an African American group from DC who are a jazz fusion band that is yeah, converted I think to punk. actually. So, what I would say is that, um. The, the bad brains really embody the American experience. You know, I'm absolutely, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, I love the fact that like when the greatest golfers was Tiger Woods or one of the greatest rappers were the beastie boys and Eminem, you know, it's like, that's, that's America. You know, we, you know, that's what rock and roll was. It was a mix of, you know, blues was a mix of European instruments and slave music and rock and roll was a mix of white, music with you know the rhythm and blues so it's all about the gray area the bad brains were grew up in the suburbs of dc and they were you know most of them two of them were grew up in the army you know traveled traveled the country you know they were pretty worldly open-minded guys they were um listening to like jazz fusion you know they were which is not jazz, you know, those are like the white guys playing the jazz, you know, <laughs> yeah. so, yeah. yeah, so they were, you know, they, uh, and, you know, they were like, uh, they learned about Rastafarianism, and they learned about Bob Marley and all that through punk rock, which, which, which kind of segue between each other on the, 
Um, that was also chronological, too, because it was kind of like, um, you know, there was a lot, lot of connections between Jamaican music and British punk music, you know, from Scott to uh, chronologically meaning that uh, reggae, Bob Marley, was actually the first, was the last music before punk, kind of, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Like, so um, it just all kind of fit, you know, the whole thing just kind of fit and they were right for it and um, they were the greatest band, you know, you'd ever seen. Um, we're talking yeah. about these bands being their worst enemies. Um, then you get into the, uh, the business of music. And uh, I used to always hate, I, I'm not going to name any names, but like guys I know who came from underground who became super big rock stars and kind of disappeared. But I uh, don't have, you know, moved on to new friends, etc. But you know what? I get it now because you need somebody to protect, protect you from yourselves and from everyone else, you know? And like, you know, no one knew until recently, like, you know, what assholes the Eagles were or, you know, some band like that, you know, these were hard, you know, if this, if these guys were like in a hardcore scene where there was no managers and publicists and all that stuff around it, you know, everybody would have that feeling about them. Yeah, wouldn't have the same feeling about them. Yeah, you know? but so, of course, without all the money is, and cocaine and bodyguards, they might not have been such horrible people. Right? No, no. I'm saying I'm not. I'm not. I still like. You know, I actually like read this thing about Fleetwood Mac. It was the story about the Rubers album and uh, like how that was all about just you know affairs and coke and you know like all these things. So I'm just saying, let me check that out again. And it was just dreadful as I remembered it, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you know, yeah. so, it, and I remember like, you know, I was talking, I was telling somebody like, why did you hate all these bands so much? It was like, and I said, you know what? A lot of times it wasn't, probably wasn't even the band. It was just like, you know, you heard it a million times, you know, yeah, like, I know every note of dark, of dark side of the moon. I, I never, I could tell you every note on that album and I've never, owned it or anything you know what i'm saying yeah like, that's what out. people don't understand now i mean you know i recently came across the performer Flowrider and i'd never heard of mm -hmm. him and was and, and was watching a video about big, biggest selling artists through the decades and this is one of the biggest mm -hmm. selling artists musical artists of the 2010s i'd never heard of him in the 80s <laughs> if somebody had a major hit your grandmother heard of them. You know, Boy George was big in 83, and boom, everybody has to deal with Boy George because it's on the radio, it's on MTV, it's playing in the grocery stores. The the omnipresence of pop music culture in the 70s and 80s cannot be understated, and that's what hardcore was reacting so violently against. And, you know, that's another thing why I appreciate the book because millennials and younger have these fond feelings about Journey and, 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 you know, the Eagles and all this stuff. Because, you know, on the musical merits, maybe there's something to it. It's hard for me to, to appreciate that. But they didn't have it rammed down their throat, or they heard it when they were little, little tiny kids. So it is, they associate it with comfort and home and, and family and fun. And in the 80s, that was just not the case. You associated that music with the jocks who were beating you up every day. And, and, yeah, and, pretty much. There was... Um... 
I was I was just about to interject that like last night I was watching TV and they had like Donny Osmond selling some Time Life music of the seventies set, and I was actually amazed that the music was worse than I remembered it. It was like you know like these kind of deep top 40 songs that I used to remember on, I used to memorize on Casey Kasem my, when I was 10 years old, you know, like uh, Pina Colada yeah. era songs. Yeah, Yacht Rock. I mean, it's, it's worse than I remember. It's actually worse. They look worse. They look terrible. These are ugly bands too. I mean, I've got like, well, yeah, well, they're when... not being attractive, but they're ghastly looking their yeah. hair's terrible. Their clothes are terrible. Their music's thin. It's vapid. I mean, I, I don't even know where else to go with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I don't want to get the. It's sort of the project of the show is not to get into aesthetic arguments, but I think to yeah. talk about hardcore, you have to understand it as a reactionary movement. And that's been one yeah. of the things as somebody who grew up with punk and then uh, reconciled myself with metal in my early 20s mm-hmm. and played in sort of grunge influenced bands in, in Austin in the early 90s. Uh, Yep. I sort of feel guilty that I was I was into hip hop a little bit, but I was completely deaf to dance music. I mean, I was going to dance clubs and trying to score drugs and get laid, but I was not paying any right. attention to what this music was. It was just right. synthesizers and drum machines booming, you know. And and but now, in retrospect, it's easy to see where guitar bands were this retrograde, reactionary thing, and it, they were we were not on the cutting edge of music. You know, we were expressing maybe a cutting edge of culture, but we weren't musically innovative in in a way that say the EDM or you know the early techno guys were. Definitely the hip hop artists were, and when you see how grunge and the punk revival was co opted by the system once it finally did you know explode into the mass consciousness. Yeah, it's it's very disheartening. And I think, you know, I really appreciate the book for documenting this movement when it was pure and when it did mean something and the struggles that people had to go through. And and it wasn't just the Fleetwood Mac fans. It was also the what we called new waivers at the time and people, yep. you know, in Austin, we had the new sincerity scene and there were these bands like zeitgeist and tr- true believers and that, that yeah. had record yeah. company no, interests. Yeah. And... I couldn't get with that. Yeah, um, no, it was, so you, it did was... Remember, you, you, when you talked about metal and punk and Texas, it reminded me of this amazing night. I was hanging out with the butthole surfers when they were still living in San Antonio and they brought me to see this band watchtower. Yes. Which, if you remember, is like... Yes, uh, became early... Dangerous Toys eventually. Yeah, became Dangerous Toys, right. But they were on that compilate, that whole Surfers compilation record with the Dicks and all really red and all those bands. Yeah. Um, Cottage Cheese from the Lips of Death, I believe it was called. Yes. And, uh, yeah, so I do... Uh, that was a really kind of a... That was a pretty cool band. I remember that. But... Um, it was, you know, the, hardcore was like, it, like music was almost like, it wasn't, of course it was all about the music, right? You know, but it was not about like the richness of the music or the tonality of the music or the, or the crispness of the music or was the singer lisping or is it muddled or I was, it was just so amazing that you could make something so low tech and just put it out. I was just so amazed by that, you know. I went through this long thing of talking about um, history 
of you know how of the, all this major rock music and this was like just screaming to do the opposite and that's i think that's why we still talk about it because it was so radical and and powerful so radical, man it was like yeah, yeah i mean this is like you know this is why like people uh you know i don't want to get political about too political about it but you know there's certain movements that you know kind of sit on the under you know they they just it just kind of gurgles on the edges for a while until it hits the mainstream so yeah um, i think the the best analog uh in american music history to hardcore is actually be jazz bebop when charlie parker and dizzy gillespie and other guys got tired of basically corny white guys trying to sit in with them and and decided to make the music so complicated that unless you were down and really 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 good you could not play with them and, and it was an intellectual movement sort of presaging black separatism and, and this declaration yeah. that we are artists and we're intellectuals and hardcore is different in that we it was any it was musically the opposite of that but it was a self segregation it was people saying we are opting out of the system we are not going to be part of your system and we're going to still make music and we're still going to communicate with people that are like-minded and and eventually I you're being in have college to... and going like there's this album by billions of dead cops that had just come out and I'm like, you know, which way do I go? Do I like like do I become a lawyer or do I go like the direction that this record's leading me? You know, and uh, I obviously chose <laughs> the latter. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> but it was it was I, I remember that clearly at the time. I mean, it was like really just like you know, are you in? Do you buy into Black Flag? You know, are you in on the bad brains? You know, do you believe, you know, I mean, and, I just thought the last, I was around, I it was around for, went to and hung out at a uh, couple recent um, Danzig shows and uh, the Misfit shows, I'm sorry. And, uh, you know, I've heard feedback, you know, from lots of people, but it's like, let me tell you, the backstage, the band was in great spirits. It was like the first hardcore band to ever sell out an arena like that, like an old school band. Yeah. The first old school punk band to sell out an arena. Uh, it, and it was like, it was deep. It was like, it was part of our history. You know, there's 18,000 people in those, in those skulls, Crimson Skull, whatever they're called, shirts, you know. It's uh, it's they, deep. It's like you're you're part of you know you're part of something that's so much deeper than music. That's why I have trouble. You know, I mean, I think it kind of wrecked me in many ways because, like I like we said, the bar was so high for doing the right thing with your. Was, you know, it wasn't only music. It was like how do you handle yourself? Exactly, like, and what that's your beliefs. Why I'm glad you brought up MDC because they were an Austin band called the Stains. They yeah. changed their name to MDC. You know, millions of dead cops, multi-death corporation. They had you know many variations of what the acronym stood for, but they were deeply involved in one of the incidents that was the Bad Brains Waterloo. And the Bad Brains right. are these you know middle-class, open-minded kids who get into first a self-help book called Think and Grow Rich and really use that to power their music and their project but also showed this propensity for believing sort of cult mentality stuff. Then they get into Rastafarianism and go all in and adopt the homophobia of Rastafarianism and have this unfortunate collision 
in Austin with the big boys who had an openly gay lead singer, the Dicks had an openly gay lead singer, the Stains have an openly gay lead singer, get into this right, stupid-ass right. confrontation over a $25 pot deal, and MDC then evangelizes against them around the country for years after that. And and in Austin to this day, if you get old punkers together, the bad brains are still very controversial, which is painful because they were such a great band. And yet it's impossible to hear the tales of the things that HR did to people without understanding why people are still pissed. I mean, if, 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 you know, I mean, fight your own battles is really how I look at it. You know, it's like if, if uh, you know, that battle was not led by the big boys, if you noticed. No, absolutely not. And Tim Carr is, you know, yeah. a, a huge inspiration to the scene and, and somebody great, I've admired great. for not years. And, 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 you know, uh, uh, just a great guy. I mean, all, he's just been a, yeah. a, a, a linchpin of the scene and he you know, reading his account of that incident is so painful because he was clearly knew he was caught in the middle of this crossfire, that it was stupid, that it was self-defeating. He loved the Bad Brains music, but he has to, you know, once it's a fight, you have to choose sides. He's got to go with his band, his singer, uh, you know, in the face of this stupid bigotry on the part of the Bad Brains. But Let's play our last song, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about the metal crossover and kind of the end of hardcore before we wrap. But this is the Bad Brains' Sacred Love. This is from their mid-'80s SST album, I Against I, where they had Ron St. Germain, big-time production, and still had to record a song with the vocalist in jail. So this is uh, Sacred Love by the Bad Brains. that was a bad brain sacred love from their sst album eye against eye and you know you hear that you heard it at the time i remember that just blowing a hole through our high school i mean that was one of the first punk records where we could play it for our metalhead friends and there was none of this oh we apologize because it's kind of wimpy or this is sloppy or this is doesn't mean i mean the heavy metal guys immediately got it it just blew people Mm -hmm. away and you know, by we never heard the rumors that they were going to sign with Island or tour with you two. I mean, you know, we just had this album and never knew why they didn't come touring. You know, and and um, as it turns out, they self sabotage. But at the same time, metal is you know, metal was initially very anti-punk. You have a quote from uh, one of the guys in Iron Maiden talking about how they resented being called a new wave of heavy metal, you know, that they didn't want to be associated with punk. But by the mid-80s, you've got bands like Metallica and Slayer that are, you know, Kerry King would have a DK sticker on his guitar. They covered, you know, Guilty of Being White in a bad way. You know, they changed the lyrics to make it, it was already iffy if you didn't understand the context of being you know, the only white kid in a school in D.C., and they basically turn it into a racist statement, you know, and so that was kind of one of the signals of the death of hardcore was when so many bands like DRI does an album called Crossover and, and goes metal. Corrosion of Conformity goes metal. Uh, other bands like Husker Du sign with Major Label and are trying to go pop. Like, can you give us a quick summation of that that end of hardcore? Right, right. So you get, you know, for... for half a decade you have this incredible ferment of unity and revolution and 
like all, like any movement, it kind of fritters away, um, and people grow up. And this that had a lot to do with it. Um, you get better at your instrument. Do you want to uh, be a singer songwriter, if you will, uh, like a Bob Mould, or did you want to become a a metal god with this new metal that you learn, be it SSD control in Boston or uh, COC in Carolina or DRI and basically moved to San Francisco at that point. Um, but uh, I guess they weren't from, they were from Houston, if I remember. Yeah, they're a Houston band, definitely. A yeah, I, I saw them in Houston, yeah. But I think they played one of the shows I was at then. I, I used to like them. But anyway, so uh, regardless, there was like these two two different directions you were going to go and uh, nobody really stayed the course. So Ian McKay didn't stay the course, you know, uh, you know, um, yeah, he was committed to the ideals, Dan, but he didn't yeah, musically. Yeah, they, they're still the same people, right. They're still the same people, but you know, you kind of, it's like, what do you want out of your, what do you want from life? Right. You're like, what direction do you want to go? You know, you're your own individual. So some people went one way, some people went another way. Uh, nobody seemed to like either of them, uh, which spurred on a second wave, which I guess probably starts with in New York with agnostic front and the Chrome mags. Um, uh, sick of it all, you know. It starts so absolutely, and, uh, and people I've... who uh, Gorilla Biscuits guys who are believers. These are the believers, you know. These weren't the pioneers. So it's I, I compare it a lot to Jesus. A lot of this because it's like these are the followers, you know. The um, there's the apostles going out of the New Testament that weren't written to like a hundred plus years after Jesus' death. So yeah. you can imagine the stuff they were coming up with, you know, that's a long yeah. time back then. And so, uh, you know, that was kind of like my feeling about hardcore was that the, the history hadn't really been told. So it was almost like a game of telephone, you know, it was like people hadn't really known it, which is my inspiration on all this. But anyway, so this whole thing comes crashing down. And, you know, I've had some people say like, oh, why do you say 1986? It's over. Well, minor threat breaks up. Uh, Black Flag breaks up. Dead Kennedys break up. This is all 86. You know, 86 is that tremendous kind of crossover record of uh, Eye Against Eye by the Bad Brains. You know, 86 is, um, you know, Danzig's first album. Uh, yeah, it's the start of Danzig. Sam Haynes. Uh, I think it was Sam Haynes. Sam Haynes, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you're seeing something different there. Um, and 86 is, uh, you know, the is really where the crossover happens with, uh, you know, incredible records by Slayer, uh, uh, Slayer Metallica. Yeah, Rain and, and Blood comes out and in 86. And to a lesser degree, Anthrax all had these really good records, you know, and they were definitely and, into punk. And I mean, Stormtroopers of Death, punk. the Anthrax spinoff band. Yeah, has right, right. There you go. Perfect. Record. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's the angle. That's the angle of hardcore, per hundred percent. So, you know, this whole thing's going on. I um, was on a few dates of the Slayer Rain and Blood tour 
And I got to say, it reminded me of one of those Dead Kennedys tours in terms of the ultraviolence, you know. Yes. Um, so I, uh, I really felt the connection to all that stuff. A big moment was uh, there was a black, one of these black flag shows in 1986 is in New Jersey. And the band playing the next night at the club down the street is Metallica who were on a record label called Megaforce, which was in that same area. So they were at the show, and I could tell, and, you know, there's a part of it in the book that talks about, you know, a few people who were there, but, you know, you could tell that they had, were just starting to see this thing. They were just starting to get that there's, like, this whole other world out there beyond metal, you know, and, and very soon after that, they no no longer have the poodle hair, you know, or yeah. the bullet belt. You know what I'm saying? They, you know, they understood the power of this stuff. You know, they go see like, you know, Cro-Mags or something, and then you know, there's no going back after that. Yeah, it, it was. You can't go back to can't go back to Journey solos after seeing like, you know, seeing Cro-Mags and Agnostic Front. You and know? you can't go back to the kids will have their say after seeing Slayer yeah. Metallica either. And and like right. you say, you know, once SSD learned how to play, they, uh, you know, weren't the same band. Once Vinny Stigma started getting real guitarists over to his parts and, yeah. and <laughs> openly miming on stage, you know, yeah. uh, it's just a different thing. So, Stephen, this has been great uh, talking about American hardcore. We could, I mean, it's a massive history. We could talk about it for hours and hours. I definitely recommend the book and movie to anybody who hasn't read or seen it. And thanks for coming on and hope we can have you back to talk about hair metal, which you are also the historian of. Yes. Uh, you could learn more about my roots, so to speak. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> hey, thanks it's so really much, been Steve. a pleasure. Yeah. It's been really great. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate will be back next week with Susan Whitehall to discuss the women of Motown. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. American Hardcore, A Tribal History is published by Feral House. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.